if you want your audience to remember something, you need to make them feel. Emotion is the glue that causes a memory to stick. I am Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome back to the Mind Valley podcast. Today, you're going to learn three secrets for powerful public speaking. This is going to matter to you, no matter if you're a speaker or not, because if you are someone who's trying to make a difference in the world, whether at your job or whether you're raising investment for your company or you're trying to convince someone to join your firm or you're trying to pitch your boss an idea, you need to know public speaking. You need to be able to speak in front of a group without sweat, without anxiety, and make an impact. And the thing is, there's an art to this and a science to it. And when you learn this, you can radically transform your speaking. Now, our guest today, who's going to be teaching you these three secrets, is Eric Edmeads. Eric is known quite widely as the creator of Wild Fit by Mindvalley, Mindvalley's revolutionary program that transforms the way you approach food. But Eric also, because of his abilities as a transformational coach, was asked by Tony Robbins to share Tony's stage. And Eric would be so good on Tony's stage, people would go up to him and say, can you teach me to speak like that? And so Eric became a trainer of other speakers. And his work has been transformative. I've actually trained with Eric. And I've sent a lot of people from my senior leadership team to train with Eric. And let me tell you what happened. One of them was this, this kid called Gotham, right? Gotham Katrapal from India. Gotham is under 30 years old. I sent him to train with Eric. And Gotham went from being more quiet and reserved to being a master on stage. Brilliant, funny, charming, and it opened up so many doors to him. And so I learned to send all of my key people to study with Eric because the stuff that he does truly, truly matters. Now, you're going to get a glimpse of Eric's abilities to transform you as a speaker. And I really wanted to share this with you because I'm one of his students too. So here's what we're going to cover. You're going to learn how to get over the fear of public speaking. You're going to learn how to bring vulnerability on stage. You're going to learn how you are really one talk away from anything you want. Now, this is a longer podcast episode because I wanted to deliver a ton of value to you. You're probably going to have to invest an hour, 42 minutes. That's the duration here. But we're going to go deep in training you to be a world-class speaker. And at the end, there's going to be a Q&A with the audience where we're going to answer questions such as, what do you do before you come on stage? What do you do when an emotion comes up? What if nobody cares about what you have to say or you feel that nobody cares? How much should you practice in the mirror? And how do you create a successful story structure that arouses and inspires your audience? So again, this is going to be a fairly robust training, but my job is to deliver amazing value to you guys. Thank you so much for being such a big fan of the Mind Valley podcast. And really, I'm doing this in celebration of us hitting a new milestone where our episodes are now being listened to by 50,000 people. So let's get started with the one and only Eric Edmeads. Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. Are you guys ready? Yes. That's good. I'm not. I, I, what, what, what was the topic, Jason? 
so this is actually one of my absolute favorite topics because I spent so much of my life afraid of communicating, afraid of communicating for anybody. I mean, one-on-one -on -one I could just about handle. Two-on-one -on -one became public speaking, and I didn't like that very much. And three-on-one became absolutely terrifying for me. And the change in my life when I overcame that stuff made a big difference. And so currently, I am working on a, a book, and it is called One Talk Away. And the premise of the book is that you right now are one talk away from something. I don't know what that is for you, but you're one talk away from... How many of your book you want to write? How many of your book do you have written? How many have a digital program that you want to launch in a big way around the world? How many of you have uh, political aspirations? You guys can go. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> you guys should have... You are the people who should have political aspirations. And what I want to suggest to you is that many of you are one well-constructed, well-delivered talk away from absolute explosion of what it is that you want to do. And I've seen this in my own life, but think about Brené Brown. Like, who was Brené Brown before Brené Brown was Brené Brown? Well, she was still Brené Brown, but you just didn't know it, right? And, and who was Simon Sinek before Simon Sinek was Simon Sinek? He was just Simon. You know, he was just a guy. And what happened in both of their cases is, in their cases, they had the TEDx platform. If I remember correctly, Brené Brown did a talk at TEDx Puget Sound, I might have it backwards. Simon Sinek did another TEDx talk. Well, here's what's really crazy. When Simon Sinek went to go do that first talk, his speaker fees were at a pretty good level. He was already a speaker. His speaker fees exploded after that talk. That talk's gone on to get tens of millions of views. And Brené Brown, very similarly, in fact, if you go watch her documentary, she talks about what it was like. She'd been speaking scientifically about vulnerability for years. You know, she'd go out and talk about vulnerability. But she would speak about vulnerability without what? vulnerability. She spoke from the perspective of a clinician, I suppose. You know, we've got research and it's not vulnerable. It's just scientific study about vulnerability. And then one day she actually did a talk during which she was vulnerable. And that talk was picked up and put on YouTube. And the way she tells the story, she's like, she saw it on YouTube and it's like 10 views, 20 views, 300 views, 3000 views. And it was around that point that she tried to have it removed. She's like, whoa, whoa, I didn't want to be vulnerable for that many people, <laughs> right? It's like, time to have that taken down. But then it went crazy and millions of views and best-selling books, just like Simon, like one talk had such a massive impact. In fact, I was talking to my wife about this as I've been writing this book, and she happened to be reading Becoming Michelle Obama. In chapter 15, Michelle describes one talk. You see, Barack had written this book, Dreams of My Father, that most of you have heard of, the thing is, is that for the first six years after it was published, nobody heard of it. It was published and it just didn't go anywhere. No book. Publishers know that only about one in seven or one in 10 books is actually going to go anywhere. And that was one of the books that didn't go anywhere. And then he delivered one talk. And he delivered that one talk. And suddenly that book was a New York Times bestseller. And suddenly there was a shift in the energy. When he was being interviewed, they used to ask him questions about politics and policy in Illinois, where he was a politician. After that one talk, they started asking him questions about national policy. Where do you think this led him? They often talked about the fact that that one talk might have been the beginning of everything. And I can tell you the same thing is true for me. I have a number of individual talks that I've done where this individual talk exploded a bunch of things for me. Was anybody here at A-Fest in Mykonos? Was anybody in Mykonos? So I was in Mykonos. And I want to tell you what happened in my case is that, you see, before Mykonos, I gave one of those talks. 
I gave a talk that would change everything for me. And I want to describe to you how I constructed the talk and why I delivered the talk the way I did because I think it'll be helpful to you. Now, I have a question. How many of you would love to be like on the AFEST stage? Anybody interested? Anybody interested in how I managed to make that happen for me? Anybody want to know the strategy? I want to share with you how I did this because I really want you to know something. And if you've ever seen me speak before, you will know this to be true of me, is that I am absolutely aware that every single person that's in the audience, every single one of you, have stories and life experiences that if you were up here sharing them with us, that they would blow my mind and they would change my life too. I know that's true for every single person in that room. The only person that doesn't necessarily know that right now is who? You. But it's absolutely true. If any of you are at the finals of the Speaking Academy, you will have watched time after time somebody walking up on stage and sharing a story that made you laugh, made you cry, made you think. Because you all have life experiences that are incredibly valuable. One of the challenges is is that they're your life experience and so you already received the value of it. And so now you look back at it and go, it's just a thing. I don't see the value anymore because I've got the lesson, but somebody else doesn't yet have that lesson. Does this make sense to you? So... What happened in my case was I was at an event and Vision was going to be there. I knew Vision was going to be there. And I knew that I wanted to get my WildFit program onto the Mindvalley platform. I knew that I wanted to. I knew that it could be explosive for us. I knew that it could be a big deal for us. And here's the thing. The trouble was is that Mindvalley had made a decision at that point that instead of going for quantity, they were going to go for quality. They had 80 authors and they were going to strip it down to 15. Not that the others weren't quality. It's that the programs weren't quite there from a retention perspective yet. And they wanted to focus in on what they knew was working. So they were going from 80 programs down to 15, if I remember the numbers correctly. And in the meantime, I think I'm going to get my program added. This is a big goal. And so I want you to think about how I did this. The first thing is, is that I happened to have proximity. I was with Vision on a bus and I said to Vision, and I want you to hear me about this because you see when you're networking, when you're marketing, when you're meeting new people, we often make the mistake of speaking first. If you really, really want to make an impact on somebody, let them speak first. Find out what you can about them because once you know enough about them, you'll know what to say about you to make you interesting to them. Does this make sense? And so I sat there on the bus and I turned to Vision and what most people do when they meet Vision, they just vomit ideas onto him. He's always got ideas all over him, (laughs) right? People just come up and they just want to sell themselves. Oh no, I've got this incredible program. It could be life-changing if only I had Mindvalley. And he has to hear this all the time. And instead I sat there and said, Vision, what are you interested in these days? What's going on for you? What are you curious about? And he goes, oh, right now I'm really into biohacking. Biohacking's the thing for me right now. I'm really fascinated by the idea of biohacking. And I said, that's amazing. My talk tomorrow is all about biohacking. Now. (laughs) And the truth is my talk the next day was actually about evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology, which is the foundation of biohacking. In my opinion, if you don't understand a little bit about evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology, you have no business biohacking. So all I had to do is bring that into my talk a little bit and then it would match his thought process and his frequency. And so I did that and he showed up the next day and he saw the talk and he walked up to me right away and he said, you need to come and speak at AFEST. Like that. And what did I say? No problem. 
No problem. Now, the thing is, I wasn't really doing much speaking back then. I had a very open calendar. I'd been running a business. I didn't really, you know, he told me it was in May, I think it was. I can't remember for sure, but whatever month it was, he's like, it's this month, and I had nothing going on that month, so I said yes. And then my friend Colin Sprake walked up to me, and he goes, Eric, that talk was amazing. You have to come do that at our business excellence program in Vancouver, Canada. It's in the same month. And I'm like, well, what are, you know, that's fine. I got nothing going on that month. I said, I'll do it. Then I found out they're on the same weekend. But they were close, you know, Mykonos, Vancouver. <laughs> and so no kidding, I got on the stage in Vancouver, delivered my talk, literally ran off the stage to get into a limo to go to the airport, catch three flights, get to Mykonos and walk on stage and deliver the talk that I did in Mykonos. And I would argue that the talk that I did, that first one that got Vision's interest was one talk that made a massive impact in my life and in the life of thousands of people around the world because that's what got me invited to AFEST. That's what got WildFit on the Valley platform. Does this make sense to you guys? You are one talk away. So let's talk about why you're one talk away. It seems obvious in some ways, but maybe there's an explanation. And I will tell you the explanation just 10 days ago. Just 10 days ago, I was in East Africa. I took about 10 of our wild fit coaches to go and visit with the Hadzabe people in East Africa, hunter-gatherer bushmen. I don't like sharing this when I know there's like millennials and younger in the room because it can be jarring to them, but these people don't have Netflix. Are you going to be okay? They don't even have dial-up. It's like they don't have phones, they don't have money, they don't have agriculture. They, they live like they're hunter-gatherers. They move their camps all the time. They follow the water. They follow the hunting. They are living effectively a Stone Age. I'll tell you, we went hunting with them. This is 10 days ago. We went hunting with them. We have a camera crew, the whole deal. We were really in there like doing some serious research. We went hunting with them. And all of a sudden, they killed a, a big bush pig, which you guys, it's not Pumbaa. Don't worry. You remember Pumbaa from the line? It's not Pumbaa. Pumbaa's about this big. The bush pig's about this big, this big. It's a, a big animal. And then they, what they want to do is make a fire really quickly because you cannot carry a 150 or 180 pound pig back to camp. So you have to, you have to cut it up into pieces. And so they make a fire. Do you know how they make the fire? They rub sticks together to make the fire. I'm mentioning this to you because I want you to understand the way they live is what we would call or what we would think of as primitive, right? I don't know if it's all that primitive because it looks pretty cool to me. But here's what I do know is that at night they sit around the fire and they tell stories to each other. And that's the primary way of passing information between people. You see, the very best way for human beings to learn is to do. The very best way is to actually do stuff. Because then your muscles are doing it and your neurology is doing it. And your brain plasticity kicks in and you create muscle memory, which is actually brain memory. And so that's the best way to learn. But there are some things that you cannot do yet. Like if you're four years old, you cannot go hunting. Do you know why? It's not that you're not fast enough to keep up. That's a problem already. But the bigger problem is, is that in Africa, when you're this big, there are a lot of things that think of you as food. So it's not safe for you to go hunting when you're three or four or five or six or even eight years old. In fact, if you go visit parks where they have cheetahs that you can play with, they won't let children in that are under 12 because the cheetahs see them as food. So that means these kids, they need to learn how to become a good hunter, only they can't go hunting. So how are they going to learn? They sit around the fire and they hear stories. They hear stories for the first decade of their life. And you know what's crazy? When you hear a good story, when you watch a movie, when you read a book, your muscles fire relative to the action in the book just a little bit. And so what's happening is they're hearing all these stories about hunting and what to do and what's happening. And they're hearing the stories. So the very first time they go on a hunting trip, they actually already know what they're doing. 
We've been learning like that for millions of years. We've had fire for probably two million years. We've had some form of language for a very long time. We've been sitting around the fire telling stories to each other for a long time and our brains like that. Our brains enjoy getting information in story form. Our brains like somebody sharing knowledge in the form of a story. Our brains soak it up. Here's the difference. How many of you have ever had a teacher that was pushing information into your brain? Who's had that teacher? Okay, but how many of you had the teacher where your brain was pulling the information out of the teacher? Which is nicer, right? When you're pulling it, when you want it, when you're curious for it, when you're powerfully desiring it. And I'll tell you the difference. Pushing is no story. If you want to put information into somebody's head, you have to push it in there if you don't have a story. If you have a story, then the client wants it. Then the audience, the student wants it and they're pulling the information from you and so they will remember it. If you want your audience to remember something, you need to make them feel. Emotion is the glue that causes a memory to stick. If you have no emotion about an event, you will not remember it. This is why your keys are somewhere else. You know, you put them down without emotion and they're gone, right? You know, if you go find them again, we don't have a memory when we don't have an emotion. But if you have a memory, then you'll have emotion. In fact, I would put to you that what post-traumatic stress disorder is, is too much emotion related to an event. And it locks the memory in so vividly that you can't shake it. Once we kind of understand that, then we go, oh, awesome. Okay, so we know that the key here, that the absolute key is to evoke emotion. Well, it's very difficult to evoke emotion just lecturing, but it's very easy to evoke emotion telling a story. Does this make sense? Okay, so then the next side of it is, is that, the next side of it is that I want you to imagine, I really want you to imagine for a minute, because I was just there 10 days ago, what it would be like to wake up in the morning and not have food. The food is out there. No fridge, no cupboard, no dry goods, no pantry. The food is out there. That's how you wake up in the morning. And that means when you wake up in the morning, you're gonna have to go walking, you're gonna have to go hunting and gathering. That's just your life every single day. Every single day, you're gonna do 10 to 20 miles every single day, gathering, hunting, looking for honey, looking for fruits, looking for root vegetables. That's every single day. And then at the night, when the fire's lit, and you're relaxed and the stories begin and you let your conscious mind go and you allow the stories to sink in. How relaxing and pleasurable that is, that information can simply go in without any effort from you to memorize it. That's why we like it that way. That's why we enjoy it that way. And so I want you to think that it's 100,000 years ago and we're all out there in nature. There are hyenas in the distance. There's lions calling out here and we're sitting around the fire. And then somebody shares a story around the fire and you hear that story and you think, I am so glad I heard that story. That story just might save my life. Whose fire will you want to sit around for the rest of your life? Whoever told that story in that moment. If somebody shares a story that has a major impact on your life, if somebody gives you a distinction that makes you make a lot more money or save your relationship or make you a better parent or help you build a phenomenal business or sell your book or change your life, if it improves your quality of life, then you are inclined to go back to that fire again and again and again. Is this true? And so that's why you're one talk away. That's why Simon Sinek can deliver one talk and build an industry 
You know, we tried to book Brené Brown for an event that we were organizing for an events company that I was in a partnership in in Copenhagen many years ago. And we reached out to her team to book her and her fees, if I remember correctly, were something like $125,000. And we got talking with the team. She was available on those dates, but then they wrote and said, actually, she's just decided she'd rather spend that week with her family. How many of you would like to be able to turn down an hour and a half on stage for $125,000 and just turn it down? Who would like to be able to turn it down? You know, people are always saying, who would like to be able to charge that much? You know what? Charging that much is really cool. I'd like to be able to turn that down. And that's the point, is that she delivered that one talk around the fire. Everybody wants to be around her fire. They will pay a premium to be around her fire. And so that means she can choose. That means she can turn down a $100,000 speaking gig because she's got options. So what I want to share with you is that whatever your dream is, whatever your mission is, whatever it is that you want to achieve out there in the world, whatever impact you want to have, and let's just be clear, the state of things as they are today, you know, on our planet, there might be some change required. Who agrees with me about this? Do we require some social change? Do we require some environmental change? Do we require some political change? Do we require change, oh, let's say, to food regulation? Do we require change to healthcare? Do we require change to education? We need change at every level of our society at the moment. And what I want you to know is the way you're going to stimulate the most powerful change is by becoming comfortable with getting your voice out, by becoming effective at telling stories, by becoming effective at communicating your message. And by the way, can this power, this power of one talk, can this power of public speaking be used for good and bad? Sure it can. How many of you, mostly Americans, I imagine, will remember Mr. Rogers? You guys remember Mr. Rogers? You got to go out on YouTube and you got to go find the story about Mr. Rogers saving the public broadcasting service because they were going to cut funding to it, the federal government. They were kind of cutting the funding and he wrote to them. I don't know how he got it, but he got seven minutes in front of the Senate subcommittee that was going to take away this funding. And he went in there and in seven minutes, he told stories. He even sang a song. And in seven minutes, I think he scored a huge amount of money to save the public broadcasting system at that time with one talk, we use one talk away in seven minutes, in seven minutes. So it can be used for incredible good. When we take a look at some of the talks that Winston Churchill did, we could argue that he may well have saved Europe with some of his individual speeches. Is that true? And then we can take a look at somebody who was trying to destroy Europe or change it for whatever he thought was right. Did he use speeches? Of course he did. In his book, Mein Kampf, he even wrote in that book, 10 years before any of this stuff started in Europe, 10 years before, I think Mein Kampf is 1925. In 1925, in the book, it says, every great revolution has been started by powerful oration. He knew that then. It wasn't an accident that he was giving those speeches. It wasn't an accident, he knew. So since we know it's powerful, we know it can be used for good and dark, why? Why are we so reluctant to use it? Because it's risky. I mean, you could get on stage and you could forget what you were going to say. Or you could, you could just suck. You could just get up and it could be bad. Is it true? Could this happen? And then what would happen? <gasps> Humiliation. Ostracization. You could be rejected from society and be forced to live in a cave and starve to death. Oh, no, wait a second. No, nothing would happen. Nothing would happen. But your DNA doesn't know that. Your DNA feels like if I get up and I make a mistake, if I get up and I, and I mess it up, that I'm going to lose all my social connection. By the way, when did your DNA learn this? When you're about six? When some teacher or some parent told you that you should think before you speak or you should use your indoor voice? 
when somebody started telling you, because you were born natural communicator. You were absolutely born a natural communicator. I can prove it to you. Who's been on a plane with a baby? Are babies natural communicators? <laughs> they absolutely are. And what happens is, is that it's trained out of us. And I don't want to go too far into what you can do to fix it right now. That's a whole other workshop on how you can overcome your nerves. And, and I've got lots of videos on YouTube where you can learn more about that. I'll give you a couple of clues. I'll give you one major clue. One of the most beautiful things that Jason did by starting us off in here with the breathing exercise is exactly the crew. Because many of you that are, how many of you are anywhere from like mildly nervous to terrified of public speaking? How many of you? Okay, I get that. I really do. I get that. I get it like this, because if you asked me on a Monday to do a talk on a Friday and I said no, I would still be sick for the rest of the week, even though I said no. But there's a clue in that. You see, if I'd said no and I didn't even want to do it, why would I feel sick? But the reason you're nervous about it is you want to do it. That's the truth. The reason you're nervous about it is you want to do it. If I said no on the Monday, I would feel sick all week. Why? Because I was terrified that I might change my mind. Isn't it true? And so if you're the least bit nervous, because here's the thing, what we did, it took a little while to get set up this morning. And those of you who've been to my workshops, you already know what we did. We put five envelopes underneath all the chairs in this room. And in a minute, you're going to check under the chairs to see if you've got one of the envelopes. And if you do you're going to come up here on stage. We have a handheld microphone and you're going to give a one minute presentation on the topic under your chair. Are you guys ready? Check for your envelopes. Okay, okay, there's no envelopes this time. <laughs> Don't get too comfortable. Don't get too comfortable. Very often, I actually do have envelopes under the chair. It's just we didn't have time for that today. But here's my question. How many of you felt a real like bubbling up in your stomach when you were thinking, looking for the envelope. That bubbling up, I have a question for you. Was it nervousness or excitement? Both, because they're the same thing. They're the same thing. Every other emotion, you can differentiate it. You can look at somebody and go, that person is depressed, that person's angry, that person's sad, that person's happy, because you can look at their body and you can see the difference. But one person who's excited and one person who's nervous, they look the same. Their heart's doing the same thing. The sweat's doing the same thing. The breathing's doing the same thing. They're physiologically the same thing. Here's the difference. Nervousness is simply excitement with a negative expectation. That's all it is. It's just you're excited about the negative expectation. So then we call that nervous. On the other hand, excitement is just nervousness with a positive expectation. That's all it is. They're the same thing. So if you feel nervous before you're walking on stage, all it is is you're imagining it going badly. And so the big clues for you, if you just want to settle your nerves down a little bit are, do breathing exercises. When you breathe fully, you relax your system. When you breathe fully, you relax your system. I think this is the most addictive part of smoking. Whatever might be going on inside that cigarette, this is the deal. <sighs> no wonder they smoke. That feels good. Breathing deeply, I mean, it would be better without the noxious chemicals and disgusting smell, but the breathing deeply is what it's really all about. So when you're gonna go on stage, breathe deeply and imagine it going well. What I really wanna show you though, and I don't generally do it in this type of workshop environment, I just wanna show you exactly how to build that talk. 
I want to show you the formula that I use. This is something that we really, we teach it at our speaking academy and we go in massive detail at a retreat that I run. I don't generally teach it in this kind of format. Mind Valley asked me to give you guys something different, something really powerful about the way I build the talks. And I thought, you know what? You guys, this is the generation we've been waiting for. Whatever generation you're in, you're the ones we've been waiting for. You're the ones that need to stimulate the change out there in the world. You're the ones that are going to actually stimulate people to change their relationship with the environment or change their relationship with the political system. And so I want to show you how it is that I construct a talk. And before I do that, I want to share with you why it's so effective. That first talk that I did in Mykonos, I didn't actually want to do it. When Vishen asked me to talk, he didn't tell me that it was only going to be 20 minutes. I don't do 20-minute talks. 20 minutes? No way. That's too short, I thought. There's no way I'm doing a 20-minute talk. But when I found out it was only 20 minutes, I'd already said yes. I'm like, all right, I have to do it. Why did I not want to do a 20-minute talk? Well, as Mark Twain sort of put in a letter once, it was like, if I'd had more time, this letter would have been shorter. In other words, if you want me to talk for two or three hours, I can just walk on stage and do that. I don't even need to prepare for it anymore. I've got enough stage hours. I have enough stories. I have enough structure. I can just walk on stage. You want me to talk for 20 minutes? I'm going to have to think about that for a month. And I did. And the talk went fairly well. And it went fairly well. And here's how I know it went fairly well. Because at dinner that night, at dinner that night, Vishen comes up to me at dinner and he goes, you know, the audience, we've been getting some feedback from the A-Festers that we should have given you a bit more time on stage. And would you do another one tomorrow? Now, I want to, any of you have done event planning, you never have extra time. You don't. I mean, every now and again, there's an emergency, a speaker gets sick or something like that. But generally, speakers are going overtime, you're, you're scrunching time, you don't have extra time. So I said, where are you going to find extra time? And he goes, I'm going to take it out of my talk and give it to you. I'm thinking the first talk went fairly well. But there's a problem. It's tomorrow and it's 20 minutes again. <laughs> and I don't have a month. And so I did the formula that I'm about to show you. I did the formula I'm about to show you. And the next morning I walked on stage and I walked out onto stage. Bean bags. Me in bare feet. With my no preparation. And I stood there and I told the audience, I am pretty sure that the talk I'm about to give to you right now is one that you will remember for years to come. Because I knew it was going to be. And I will tell you that I still to this day, two or three years later, get emails from people and get Facebook messages from people that that talk has had an impact on their life. Vishen called me three weeks later and he says, congratulations, Eric. We just loved having you at AFest. Thanks so much. And I just wanted to share with you that your talk was the second highest rated talk of the entire conference. It was outstanding. Thank you so very much. And at that point, I, I'd never, promoters, they don't tell you that stuff usually. I don't, I've never had that feedback before. And so I was like, oh, kind of blown away. And I'm like, I'm not really competitive that way, but you know, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. And he, go, and he goes, stop. I go, what? And he goes, wait. He says, your other talk, the one that you just made up, the one that you just made up the night before that you delivered for the first time ever in the history of anywhere you've never practiced it before, that talk was number one. And he said, you relegated me to position three. And I'll tell you something. One of the things that I really respect about Vision is I will tell you, and Lisa Nichols will tell you this as well. You can go to an event and you can do so well, so well that you do not get invited back. It can happen. You can do so, especially if the event organizer is one of the speakers. If you do so well 
then you cannot get invited back sometimes. But what I really love about Vision, among many things, is that he's not from that position. His idea, his concept is A, to provide the very best quality for everybody who's at that event no matter what. And his second idea is to constantly learn and grow and become the very best version of himself that he can be. And so after that, he then invited me to speak at another A-Fest. And I think you guys get, mostly A-Fest speakers are invited to come to one A-Fest. I think I've spoken at six of the last seven. And I want to share with you how I put my talks together so that you can get invites like that, so that you are in a place where you, you know, guys, I don't have an agent. I don't belong to a speaker bureau. I don't do any of those traditional things. There's one major thing. People always ask me, how do you get booked? I will tell you, the single best way to get booked. Anybody want to know? Be so good they can't ignore you. It almost never happens that I do a talk that somebody doesn't come up and say, can you come talk at the next thing? Almost any time I do a talk with more than 100 people in the audience, I get the next invitation. I get the next invitation. And so I want to show you how I build the talks so that you guys can really like start thinking about your talks this way. And then I'm going to just sit here and take like fireside Q&A from you guys on how to deliver them and answer anything I can for you so that you can get your... How many of you have a message that if you could get it out effectively, has the power to either massively improve people's quality of life or have a really positive impact on the society around you. So, who wants to learn how to do this? Vocally, who wants to learn how to do this? All right, all right, so let's do that. So, when I am getting ready to prepare a talk, when I am planning a presentation, there's a number of things that I have to take into account. And here's the first thing you gotta know. Who is the client? Okay, so I hear some different answers, the producer, the audience, the client, you know, okay, so I want to be clear, the client is one of two people, it's either the promoter or that's the audience that I'm speaking to, who do you, how many of you think it's the audience? Okay, and how many of you think it's the promoter? It is always the promoter. The only time it's the audience is when the audience bought the tickets from you. If it's your event, if it's your retreat, if it's your program, and they bought the tickets from you, then then they're your client. But if Vision is my client right now, Miriam is my client right now, and my job is to serve you, but they are my client. Does this make sense? This is incredibly important to understand about the way you're putting a talk together. This means, for example, you never throw the producer under the bus. Is it possible that things go wrong? Is it possible that you were scheduled for one time period and then they change it? Could that happen? You never let the audience know that anything went wrong. You do not throw the sound people under the bus. You do not throw the AV people under the bus. You do not throw the producer under the bus. You aim to be the one person that they feel no stress about when you walk on the stage. You know what? When Vision asked me to do that second talk, I said, what do you want me to speak about? Because he knew at that point I had a number of different topics. I said, what do you want me to deliver? And this is what he said to me. Anything you want. Well, now. I've got some ideas. You want to be the speaker that they feel that way about. You want to be the speaker that when you walk on stage, they know they're going to end up looking good. So you don't point out the things that are going wrong and you remember in your strategic outcomes that your job is to serve the producer. Does this make sense? All right. So once you've figured out that your job is to serve the producer, now, once you've taken care of that, the next thought process is, what is in this for me being you? What is in this for me? And so the way I think about this is I think about this both with key strategic objectives and secondary strategic objectives. 
So key strategic objectives are basic things like deliver the talk that they asked you to deliver. That's a key strategic. If they asked me to come out here and talk about like how to build your perfect signature talk, then that is the key objective. Then that's what I have to deliver. If my job, if I've got a book and my job is to sell books, then that's one of my key strategic objectives, sell books. Does this make sense? If I am a politician and I'm trying to raise money for my campaign, then my key objective is to raise money for the campaign. So you will often have one or two key objectives. And this is where most speakers fail. Most speakers don't go any further than that. Most speakers just think, matter of fact, many speakers, their key objective is to come off the stage alive. Just to be, if I'm alive afterwards, it worked out okay. And then some people go one level up from that. They go, if, it, if I'm alive and I got an applause and it worked out, then that's good for me as well. No, let's go a step further and say, really, what do you want to achieve by being on this stage? Do you want them to take some action? Do you want them to follow you on social? What is it that you're doing? What is the primary reason you're on the stage? Does that make sense? Now, after you figure out your primary reason for being on stage, now what you want to do is you want to think about your secondary reasons. And these are not reasons that are so firm that you will chase them. They are there in your mind and in your subconscious so that as you're choosing talks and designing talks and delivering talks, you might achieve some of these things. The way you think about this list is really simple. Wouldn't it be nice if as a result of this talk, these things happened? Wouldn't it be great if I did this talk really well, this could happen and this could happen and this could happen. So if you did a really great talk, what are some of the things that could happen? Shout them out. You did a really great talk. What are some of the things that could happen? Yes. Yes, you could get invited again. Invited back. What else? Yeah, you could get a standing ovation. You could aim for a standing ovation. Now, some of you might think, well, that's a bit egocentric. Why do you care about standing ovation? Let me tell you something. They look great in photographs. They do. They look really good in photographs. And so you might have a number of reasons. It, it might be that your marketing team came along and said, look, we need a picture of you in front of an audience with a standing ovation for the website. Now you have a strategic objective. So a standing ovation might be one of your strategic objectives. Fame. Okay. Fame. Yes. And we absolutely, that can be a secondary objective. I want to look for slightly more tangible things in this given moment. Do we have catch boxes? We have catch boxes, go for it. And I use it. <laughs> Raving fans for YouTube, Facebook, whatever social medias I address. Followers. You want followers. You want followers and fans. Throw the box to the next person. Here we go. Right in front of you. There it is. Maybe like a change in behavior if this is what your target is. Your okay. Objective is. So you might have a, a secondary objective of transformation. Yeah. Okay. What else? I have influence or impact in the Pacific industry. Yes. Now, it's a little fluffy, and I think, obviously, if we're talking about a specific industry, you could say specifically what that impact was. But what you're saying is you want to, like... Um, becoming a thought leader or something like that. Sorry? Becoming a thought leader. Okay, becoming yeah. a thought leader. Absolutely. So, establishing yourself as, say, as an expert. I want to be expert, recognized yeah. as an expert in my, in my field. What else? Over here? Sell your product or services. Yeah, well, I'm going to suggest that selling can be both a primary objective, right? A primary objective that I'm finished my talk, I want you to go to the back of the table, I want you to go buy the product. It can also be a secondary objective because there are many events where you will speak and you're not allowed to sell anything. And so now, selling your products might be a secondary objective. If you knew that selling your product was a secondary objective, might that affect which stories you chose to include in your talk, right? What else? 
demo reel. Yeah, one of your strategic objectives could be great photos and video. All right, now we could go on and on. There's probably about, how about this? How about a book deal? Could you get a book deal because of a talk you did? Could you stimulate invites from the media to get interviews with podcasts, blogs, and that kind of stuff? Could that be one of the things that happens? Is it? Could you get invited to other talks to go do other talks? Could you create a viral video? Could your talk go viral? Could that be a secondary objective? So the idea here is just to get clear about what all these secondary objectives are, because now it'll help you, first of all, in choosing the gig, in actually deciding, do you want to do that talk or not? Because if you look at it and go, you know, not enough, or even to choose between two talks. So it might be, hey, I'm thinking of doing this talk, I'm thinking of doing that talk, but then you look at your strategic objectives and you go, well, this one here will achieve more. Does this make sense to you? So once you've got your strategic objectives, it'll help you to choose the talks you're doing, and now it'll help you to design the talks. I'll give you such a good example of this. This happened to me, it's kind of a funny thing, is that when I first started speaking, I thought, you know what, I want to get some press, I want to get some podcasts, and I want to be written about in some blogs, get some noise out there, right? The trouble is, is that when you're brand new, who wants to write about you? Nobody. And then as you're a little less than brand new, who wants to write about you? Nobody's. <laughs> right? Like first nobody, then a bunch of people who have like four followers on their blog, and, but you're starting off, so you kind of got to accept that. Then I'll tell you what happens is you then move to another level where you start getting the invitations. You start getting blog invites, you start getting podcast invites, people start coming to you and they want to work with you, and then something will happen. You'll pass through another level where they become afraid to come and ask you. We were getting invites like at a rate, like we were getting invites every month, many invites every month, blog, podcast, it was like easy. And all of a sudden we were getting no, in, in fact, we had these agencies coming to us and saying, we can pay to get you on podcasts and blogs. Like, Why would we do that? People call us. But then people stopped asking. And I couldn't really understand what it was. It was about two years ago, it just stopped. And you know what it was? Is that Valley had published a bunch of my talks on YouTube and many of them gone off to get like, you know, couple hundred thousand views and all of a sudden people were seeing me and they were seeing me differently and they felt that I was unapproachable. And so suddenly I wasn't getting the invites and it was really crazy because one day this happened by accident. One day I was telling a story and the story was that I was in Stockholm teaching my five-day entrepreneur's business school, our, our business freedom experience. And I was teaching the program in Stockholm and we'd received an invite or a request from this woman to do a podcast with me. Look, guys, if you've ever been to one of my intense... Who here was at the Speaking Academy? Do you think I have time to do podcast interviews? <laughs> no way. I'm on stage for 10 to 15 hours. All I don't have... But in this case, the woman had a really good podcast. We really wanted to work with her. And so we gave her 15 minutes. 15 minutes to come and do a podcast interview during the break, during the workshop. She came in. She was super professional. We sat at the table. We did a 15-minute talk. And I'll tell you something. It was fun. She's such a good interviewer. She really understood conversation. And I enjoyed the interview and I'm all about fun. And I was like, man, I really wish we'd had more time for this. It was such a stimulating interview. An interview that I find stimulating, and I'll tell you if you really wanna know, is a, an interview that makes me think about things that I haven't thought about for a while. It makes me look at things differently and so on. And I loved it. And so it was really amazing as we told her, absolutely reach out to us again. We'd love to do a podcast. And what it taught me was that whenever I travel, Whenever I go to do one of our programs, whenever I book a keynote, I now attempt to build in an extra day at the end to do the various podcast interviews so I don't have to make her fit into 15 minutes anymore. And I just idly mentioned that 
story during a talk one day and I got like eight podcast interview requests from the audience and we hadn't had any in months and it suddenly dawned on me that what was happening is is that people had felt that I'd become unapproachable but once I shared the story that let them know that I wanted to do them and that I built the time in for it, it gave them permission to come and ask me. So you see, once you know what your secondary objectives are, you know what kind of little stories to drop in, you know what kind of examples to drop in. I was in London, England, and I was just mentioning that it was time for me to start actually finishing. Like, I've written a number of books. I've never cared about publishing them. I was in business, and it was never about the money for me. I was writing for me. And so I just told this story about this book that I was working on, and that I was, like, actually now looking for an agent. And this woman walks up to me immediately after the event, and she says, I'm an agent. I represent Hay House, and I really believe that you should be on our platform. And so I just want you to know that when you get clear about this, first of all, it'll help you choose which gigs to do, and secondly, it'll help you choose which stories to tell inside. Does this make sense? Now, thirdly, it'll help with one more thing. It'll help with improvisation. If you're doing Q&A, or if somebody just asks a question in the middle of your talk, what's crazy is that if you've given a little bit of thought to your secondary objectives, when so look, look, if somebody asks a question, are there potentially two or three or four different ways you could answer their question? Is that possible? Maybe there's, a, there's two or three different stories you could tell them to answer the question most effectively. The beauty is, is that when you've been clear about your list, then the right story pops into your head. That's the beauty of it. The beauty of it is, is that you've, you're prepared. Look, it's like going shopping. It's like grocery shopping with a list versus without. What happens when you go without? You know what happens when you go without? Not only do you not get everything, but you also end up with a bunch of stuff that you didn't want, right? When you have a list, you're way more inclined to get the things that you wanted and not to go off plan. And so this is the same thing. This is your shopping list. It's saying, I, I know I wanna get invited back. I wanna get a standing O. I want followers. I want these things. If you want followers, for example, you might go, oh, if I want followers, how am I gonna do that? Ah, a couple different things. One, maybe I'll design a slide that's got my Instagram on it, right? That way they'll be able to capture it. Because otherwise, how are they going to, with mine, I have way too many vowels in my name for people to remember how to spell it. So maybe I'd put a slide up if that was one of my strategic objectives. Or another strategic objective might be to say something like this. Oh, you know what? A couple of weeks ago, I was flying into New York and I just happened to post on my profile on Facebook that I was coming to New York and a whole bunch of people wrote to me and I ended up going off to a basketball game and then we went out for dinner. And then all of a sudden, people in the audience are going, I wanna follow Eric on Facebook because maybe I'll get to connect with him when he lands in my city. So I'm sharing a story that isn't saying, please come and fo please follow me, follow me on Instagram. No, I don't wanna do that. I wanna make my life interesting enough that you want to do that. Does this make sense? And so by having your strategic objectives, you get to a place where you are good at curating your content and you're good at dealing with improv Q&A and that kind of stuff because you know what to do. Incidentally, this also works really well if you are being interviewed. Anytime you're being interviewed for a podcast or mainstream media or a blog or anything like that, you should sit down with your list of secondary objectives. Wouldn't it be nice if this interview created these results for me? And then you write down the potential results that you might get from the interview. And then you sit down for the interview and you will find that you answer the, you know what this will stop? How many of you have ever had a conversation or an interview where at the end of it, you thought, oh, I wish I said that. Who said that? This list will stop that from happening. This list will be like, you'll come out of the interview going, nailed it. Got what I wanted from that because I was clear about what it is that I wanted. Does this make sense? All right. So then the next step, the next step, and this one, it's tough because it generally takes me about a day to really 
for those of you who have been to my speaking academy, how many of you arrived at the speaking academy under the illusion that you didn't have any stories? And how many stories do you now have? Limitless, limitless. And so I don't have time to really show you that you have a limitless number of stories. I'm just going to tell you and kind of prove to you that you do. Because if you're feeling like, oh, I don't really have all these stories. Eric, you've got all these stories. You've lived such a rich life. So have you. Here's a clue. If you have been experiencing any emotion, you're in a story. If you are mad, you're in a story. If you're celebrating, you're in a story. If you're having a completely passionate experience, you're having a story. Maybe not one you want to share, but you're in a story, right? You're in a story. And so one of the reasons that you don't always know which of your stories you want to share is that the value of that story is now kind of lost on you because you already have the moral of that story or you already have the lesson from it. What you're forgetting or what you haven't learned yet is that there is another person across the room that if they heard that story that to you is just a story, for them it might be life-changing. Does this make sense? So one of the things I suggest for all of you is that you keep a story journal. You might have a normal journal, that's fine. Keep that too. But a journal that is dedicated to capturing your life experiences. And I wanna be clear about something. Do not write the stories. Look, if you're writing a book, write the stories. But in your story journal, do not write the stories. The minute you attempt to write a story, you will engage the wrong kind of memory for the stage. And by the way, you've all seen the speaker who memorized their story. I'm going to tell you a story right now. And as I tell you the story, my voice is going to be kind of like this the whole time because I'm thinking a lot more about my words than my delivery. I will speak in complete sentences with correct written punctuation. And then what will happen is they'll get to a point where they forget one of the sentences. And if they forget that one sentence, they are, the technical term for that is, screwed. And the reason is, is that they're using linear memory. They're trying to remember this sentence because of that sentence, because of this sentence, because of that sentence. It's your experience. You don't have to memorize it. You already lived it. You just have to remember it. And you have to remember it freshly. And if you remember it freshly and you associate to it, then the audience will feel. Does this make sense to you? So I don't want you to write the stories out. How many of you guys are familiar with Janet Atwood? Janet Atwood? Janet Atwood wrote The Passion Test, Hidden Riches, phenomenal New York Times bestseller, phenomenal speaker, great friend of mine. And one day she and I were doing an event in Copenhagen and she walks up to me after and she goes, how do you do that? And I said, how, 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 do, you do, how do you do what? And she goes, that thing. And I said, what thing? And she goes, that thing where they're, where they're sitting there and, and, they're, and they're not looking at Facebook and they don't get up to leave the room and they, they're like, they're, they're, they just, they don't even blink. What's, how do you do that thing? And I'm really clear about coaching is that if you're going to coach somebody, you have to have permission to coach them. And so I said, well, do you really want to know the answer to this? Because we're very good friends and it means I'm going to have to offer some advice and I don't want to do that without permission. And Janet is one of the most open and loving and amazing people. So of course she said, please, I just want to get better. I just want to learn. What, what is it? What are you doing? And I said, well, the truth of it is, is that I'm telling stories. And she says, yeah, but I tell stories. And I said, well, hold on now. There's a difference between the relaying of facts in a logical order and telling a story. And she goes, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, you know, the story you told about how you went up to Northern California and you ran out of money and then your friends got you a job and you hated the job. You know that whole story you told up on the stage? She goes, yeah. And I said, I know the details of it, but I only know the details of it because as your friend, I was really paying attention to what's going on in the story. The fact is there was no story in there. You just told us a bunch of facts. And she goes, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand what you mean. And I said, can I tell you your story back to you? 
And she goes, okay. And I said, let me ask you a few details. And I asked her a few details about the story. And at one point I said, when you went back down the stairs, what kind of car was it? She goes, I don't know. It's a long time ago. I don't know. And so I said, all right, let me tell you the story. And I, and I started telling the story and I went, you know, I had run away from home and I went up to San Francisco, hate Ashbury, you know, everything was going on there and it was all sex, drugs and rock and roll and parties and amazing people and, and then eventually I ran out of money and, and my friends were like, I was couch surfing and people were paying for my meals and, and then I was having less friends and, and things were difficult and then a bunch of my friends came along and they found me a job and I went to the interview and I got the job and I was so thrilled because finally I was going to have some money again and I'd be able to repay all the generosity, I was going to have freedom again. And, and I got the job and I went there and I drove in and I, and I parked and I went in through the door and I went up the stairs up into the office building and they showed me to my little cubicle and I sat in my cubicle and they showed me my phone and my scripts and everything I was supposed to do. And she says, and you know, I, I tried to do it. I said to her, I, I was telling you in her perspective, I, I said, I tried to do it. I, I tried to make the calls. I, I hated it. I mean, I hated it with every inch of my being. I, suddenly the whole place was like under this yucky fluorescent lighting and the, the browns and the peeling wallpaper and the phone ringing everywhere and the air was yucky and I just, I had to leave and I got up and I got out of my desk and I went down the stairs and I pounded through the door and I got in my car and then Janet goes, Red Ford Escort. <laughs> Why did she suddenly remember? Because I evoked the emotions. And then she's like, how did you know about the peeling wallpaper? I go, I don't know. I was just so associated into the story. I was so in the moment that I just had the feeling of the place. And you know what was crazy is about, I don't know, a month and a half later, I was being interviewed about storytelling. And I told this story. But at that point, I hadn't spoken to Janet and said, hey, is it okay if I tell this story? And I've, I've done that since, but it, then I hadn't done that. So I told the whole story, but I didn't name Janet, you understand? And so I'm in there and I go, and then, so I told this woman and I told her the story and I went through the whole story and I said, and then I came down the stairs and I, and I, and I busted through the door and I sat down in my car and, and the podcast interviewer, he goes, Red Ford Escort. <laughs> and I'm like, what? He goes, we had Janet on the podcast two weeks ago. She told the story <laughs> and she told it well. And Janet actually helped me find some good words for this because she said, the way I described it, she said, what you're talking about is the difference between reporting and telling the story. The difference between reporting and telling the story. Does this make sense? So, all right. Now, what I want you to know is if you had bad customer service at the airline, you're in a story. If your husband or wife did something phenomenal for you and just, you know, just made you cry, you know, you're in a story. If one of your kids did that thing where you know you're not supposed to laugh, you know the one, right? You know you shouldn't laugh, do not laugh, do not reward the behavior, but you cannot hold it, then you're in a story. If you're feeling emotion, you're in a story and your story will have value. At a minimum, if it had an emotion, it'll have entertainment value because ultimately all people want to do is feel better. That's all they really want. They just want to feel a little better than they did five minutes before. Everything they do is to feel a little better. So when they go to see you speak, sure, they want to learn something and they want to feel better while they're learning. Is it true? So you have all these stories and I suggest you keep them in a story journal, but you do not write them down. You just bullet point them. Give it a title, call it something. The example I often use is the first story in my story journal. It says lost in translation. It's the first story. And it's a story about me going off to do my very first event with Tony Robbins. And it was for a whole Chinese audience. And Tony didn't know me from anybody. And so there was no way he was going to introduce me. Because like, 
frankly, the guy that recommended me had recommended like four or five really terrible, like not terrible, just guys that weren't rocking the stage for Tony. And Tony was really nervous that I was at this event, really nervous. So he didn't want to introduce me because what if I bomb? So the translator was going to introduce me. And then Tony's team says, Tony wants to meet you out in the hallway before you go on stage. I'm like, okay, cool. So I walk out in the hallway and I get out there. Hi, Tony. And Tony goes, how are you feeling about your presentation? And I'm like, well, you guys gave me 11 days notice. You're asking me to use somebody else's slides. It's not the perfect situation, if I'm honest. And he goes, well, you could be a lot more confident. And I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. By the way, that voice, when he booms it at you from the sky, like, (laughs) you feel that, you feel that, you feel that. And so I then remember rapport, right? Tony teaches rapport. Well, you don't, you don't get rapport by going, Tony, calm down. That's not going to get you rapport. Instead, I said, Tony, it's going to be fine. The reason none of your other business speakers could make it is because they have businesses that they can't escape from, that they are business operators. I'm a business owner. The reason I'm here on no notice is that I understand entrepreneurship. So the talk might not be the exact talk you're expecting, but your audience is going to love it. And he goes, oh, well, all right then. Good luck. And he sends me out. In the meantime, he's over here and he's going, I kind of like that guy. I think I want to introduce him. And he tells his team, I want to introduce him myself. Where's his bio? When you're a speaker, you always send a bio introduction. You, a written script that is very clear about who you are. The only time you violate that rule is when you really feel that the audience is incredibly warm to you already and the host knows you personally. Only if both of those things are in place. I don't make Jason follow a script to introduce me. Most of you guys know who I am, at least in some degree, and Jason really knows who I am. But in any other situation, you have a bio and an introduction because that is the audience's first impression of you. Is this true? So... He's looking for the bio. Problem is, is that it's a Chinese event and the Chinese translator was introducing me and he translated it to Chinese. So Tony's like, well, just translate it back. And so they translate it back. Now, Tony's supposed to come out and say, you know, I'm not really a speaker. I hadn't been on stage for three years before this event. No speaking for three years. This is going to be my first event at Tony Robbins event. First time in three years. I'm very aware of that off stage. And then Tony's out here. And he's supposed to say he's not really a speaker. He's an entrepreneur. He's had a number of businesses. You know, he started his first business. He sold it nine years later, blah, 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 blah. And then Tony comes out with the translated, translated. And he walks out and he goes, oh my God, you guys, I'm so excited to introduce this next speaker. He started his first business when he was only nine years old. (laughs) Great. Let's start with that. The good news is he was actually right. I actually had started my first business when I was nine years old. My mom used to throw these incredible parties. Her friends were all social working hippies that smoked dope and drink beer and they would come to our house and never enough space in the freezer for all the beer. And as a kid, I was very entrepreneurial. So I would make ice. When I knew there was a party coming, I'd make ice and I'd fill the bathtub with ice water and then I'd get their beer. And as they came in the front door, I'd grab their beer. And I was like, the beer case was like this. And I'd take the beers and put them in the fridge and all night I'd sell their beer back to them. I was what's called a value-added reseller. (laughs) So the good news is I did start my first business when I was nine years old. But the fact is that that story is in my story journal. It's not written out. Many of you have heard that story from me before, but it was not exactly the same as the last time you heard it. And it won't be the exact same. The facts will be the same, but the delivery will always be genuine and authentic because I'm just telling it from my memory. I'm not remembering the words. I'm remembering the experience. I'll tell you a funny little joke. 
it works for public speaking or for politics. I'll do it for politics instead. You have this young poli-sci, political sciences student, and he meets this old, grizzled American senator from Texas. And he goes up to him and he goes, oh my God, it's such an honor to meet you. I'm studying political science and I have aspirations to the highest office in the land. And is there any advice you could give me as a young man starting off my career in politics? And the old grizzled senator, he goes, well, he goes, you know, you, you kid, y'all, you all got to watch that there social media. That there social media, there are things going on in your college days. And if that shows up on Facebook, that could just ruin your political career. And the kid says, I'm with you. I, I'm really careful about that. I don't even go to those parties. And I definitely don't post that kind of stuff on social media. Thank you. I will keep doing that. I'll keep an eye on it. Have you got anything else for me? And the guy goes, well, he goes, integrity, honesty, authenticity. Once you can fake those, you've got it made. <laughs> and what I want to tell you is you can't fake them. You just can't. You can. You'll fool some of the people some of the time, but very few of them. And if you allow me a small sexist moment, you'll mostly fool men, but you will not fool women. Women are finely tuned. Women have the radar. And if you walk on stage and you are inauthentic, then they will feel it. And if you're trying to get them to vote for you, they won't. You're trying to get them to buy from you, they won't. You're trying to get them to change their behavior, they won't, because they will know there's something not right about the message. If you really want to tell a story in an effective way, if you really want to have an impact on the world, I'll tell you this really clearly. You want to be a good speaker, go study speaking. You want to be a good speaker, go, go learn the techniques, learn how to tell stories, watch all the great talks on YouTube. If you want to be a phenomenal speaker that has broad spectrum appeal, that gets invited to speak wherever they want all the time and have a real impact, work on you. Work on you so that when you're on stage, you don't have stuff. It is you and your authentic voice that's coming out and talking to the audience. Does this make sense? Now, when you've got that, you've got stories, you've got your strategic actions list. There's one last thing I want to show you, and I'm going to show it to you quite quickly because I want to get to some Q&A for you guys. And I also want you to know that there are tons of videos on YouTube where I describe this in more detail. So I'm going to give it to you quickly as a preview, and then you can go out on YouTube and find the balance. And does that sound fair? All right. For me to share this with you, I need to share a story that I'm sure some of you have heard from me before. And that story was that I was invited to speak at an event in Manchester and I was given 45 minutes. And when I got there, the woman came up to me and cut my time down to 30 minutes. How do most speakers react to that news? Tantrums. I've seen it. I'm, I'm talking middle-aged people melting down, having actual tantrums. I mean, the only way they could have made it better is to actually lie on their belly and kick the floor. I am blown away at the level of immaturity I've seen. And so when the woman says to me, I need to cut your talk down to 30 minutes, what did I say to her? No problem. Not a problem at all. And there were a number of other issues that happened with that talk. But at the end of the day, I finally got on stage and I'm now down to 30 minutes. And I'm up there and I'm doing my talk for 30 minutes. And when I get to about the five minute mark, they show me a sign at the back of the room. And it says five minutes. And I, I want you to know something, guys. If you are on stage, your job is to cast a spell your job is to take people on a journey. Your job is to wrap them in a bubble of safety and love and comfort and just so they're safe to soak up all the information. And one of the ways you can pop that bubble is by telling them about the time warnings. Oh, I've got, what? Wait, what? I have five minutes? I've got five minutes left? Please don't do that. How many of you have seen that happen and felt like it just popped the bubble, right? Don't do that. 
And so I got a five minute warning like I was supposed to and I just handled it. And when I had about one minute to go, they held up another five minute warning. And I was confused at this point because I thought maybe they didn't realize I was coming to my last minute. But I saw the look on the guy's face and you tell me what you think was going on. He's holding up the five minute warning and he's going, he's asking for another five minutes. He's asking for another five minutes. So I like give him the next, I just keep going. Do I say, oh, you want me to go another five minutes because you're screwing something up backstage? No, I'm just kept going. And then they showed me another five minute sign. And then they showed me a 15 minute sign. And then they showed me a 30 minute sign. I was on stage for over an hour and a half. The audience never knew that anything was ever wrong. The audience never knew that anything was ever wrong. And two, three years later, when I was on tour in Europe, my team reached out to her and said, hey, we see you've got your conference on again. Would you like Eric to come? Of course she wanted me to come. The problem was we had a conflict. Couldn't make it work. The dates didn't work. I could speak on Monday, but her conference ended on the Sunday and we just couldn't do it. 20 minutes later, she called my team and she said, I just convened a special meeting of the committee. We then reached out to the venue, the conference center venue, and we negotiated a deal with the venue to open the conference for an entire extra day if you guys can change Eric's schedule and have him come on Monday. That's the kind of attraction that you want to have with producers. You want them to bend reality to get you on the stage. You want to be so good and so easy to work with that they will bend reality to go on stage. And so very briefly, I want to show you speech maps very briefly because you can learn more about this on YouTube from me very easily. Effectively, what a speech map is, is a mind map that controls the flow of your conversation. The topic is in the middle and loosely speaking, I like to organize my information that it works like this. Why, why do you want to learn what it is that I'm about to share with you? What is it that I'm going to share with you? And how to do what I'm going to share with you? And then what if other things happen? Generally speaking, this is the flow that I want to share, that I want to construct. Think about how I started this presentation. I talked about you are one talk away. I talked about all the things you could achieve with one talk away. That gives you the why. Then we started going into the what. Then I started moving and now I'm into the how to. And then I'm going to do Q&A, which is going to give you what if. Does this make sense? So then what happens is you always start your talk with what we call an F-15. The F-15 is a metaphor for the F-15 fighter plane. An F-15 fighter plane uses on a short sortie, on a short flight, it'll use half of its fuel just to get to liftoff. So I want to suggest to you that if you put the lion's share of your focus on your first few minutes on stage, you will make the rest of your experience on stage so much easier. How many of you have had the experience where you're nervous, you're afraid, you walk on stage and you crack a little bit of a joke and as soon as you get that first giggle, all the butterflies start flying in formation? Who's had that experience? So why not do it clinically and intentionally? And so you build an F-15. What do I like to do in an F-15? I like to acknowledge the audience. I like to make a big fat claim. I like to tell them what they're going to get. By the way, I don't have time to really cover this properly, but please listen to me. If you're nervous, don't tell them. Don't show them. I'm not going to take a lot of time explaining this. I'm just going to say this one thing to you. Showing them that you're nervous when you're on stage doing what you want to be doing is an inauthentic call for help. It's not your authentic nervousness. No, it's not. It's an inauthentic six-year-old asking for extra praise. That's what it is. I'm sorry that I can't be more clear about that. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but if you're shaking and all this kind of stuff, it's, there's a little six-year-old and you're going, if we shake a little and if we say we're nervous, then they'll give us more praise. 
And you know the problem with that praise? You will not believe any of it. If you show them that you're nervous and then they walk up and go, oh my God, your talk was so good. Then you're gonna be going, you're just saying that to make me feel better. When you walk on stage and say, I am about to change your life with this talk. I'm not nervous about it. I'm certain about it. And then people come up to you after and go, oh my God, you changed my life. You believe them. Do you understand? So in your F-15, you give them a big fat claim and you make them feel good. Maybe you tell a little icebreaker story, right? Just get yourself started. Then the entire point should be tell a story that makes a point or lay out a point and anchor it with a story or tell a story that makes multiple points. It's just a mind map. And here's the beautiful thing. If you do this correctly, you draw pictures. Like, so if it's wild fit for me, then I might tell what I would call is my recovery story. I was sick all the time and they were giving me drugs and all this stuff and nothing was happening for me. And then one day I changed my diet. My whole life changed. I went to my doctor and said, my God, how is it that six years of medicine did nothing for me? My question for you is, in your six years of medical school, how much time did you spend studying food? Do you guys know what the answer was? None, none. And that made me curious. So there's my first story and the point that I wanna make. And then I wanna make a point that I was really interested in evolution and evolutionary biology and psychology. So in that case, I would tell that and then I would tell the story about my grandfather's skull. Now, not his skull, because he was an archeologist. It was somebody else's skull, to be clear. But he found it, so I talk about it like it's his skull, right? But the point is, is that my grandfather's history in archaeology and zoology stimulated my interest in this. And then I might want to talk about behavioral change. And I would tell this story about how I discovered behavioral change and it would make these points every step along the way. And once I know that that's my map, do I need to memorize anything? No. If anything, I just need to memorize my map just the images. I don't need to memorize that. I know it. Then it's one, two, three images. That's it. I don't have to memorize any words. I don't need any notes. And when you then tell me, Eric, we need to cut 15 minutes off. Well, there's a number of ways because this story could take five minutes or it could take 30. This story here could take 10 minutes or it could take 20. This story here can take anywhere from 10 minutes to 30 minutes. The F15, let's call it five minutes. So the shortest this talk can be is five, 10, 20, 30 minute talk. Or it's an hour 20, an hour 25. So you, you get my point? That without changing anything, that talk can be anything from 30 to an hour and a half. And that means the promoter can change my talk back and forth on the time and I won't be bothered by that. I will just make it work. And by the way, if I needed to, could I add a story here? Yeah, or if I needed to, could I cut a story out? You suddenly become the most flexible presenter in the world because you have a good system. And then the last thing I want to share with you about this before we move into some Q&A, I want you to think about your stories like this. This is time, a pie chart. Now, one of these is storytelling. One of these is high-level storytelling or reporting. And one of these is lecturing. Which should be which? That's right. This is lecturing. This here is high-level stories. And I'll explain what I mean. And this is story. This is where you cast the spell. This is where you make time go away. Ask any of the people who came to our five-day workshop. We were working for 15 hours a day. And I'll tell you something. You can ask any of them. They will tell you that on one level, time completely disappeared. It was like we started the seminar and then it was over. But that also somehow, it felt like we'd been there for 10 years. 
Because when you tell stories properly, you create time distortion. If you tell a story in half an hour that spanned five years, you've just created a five-year memory for somebody in half an hour. So on one level, a half an hour went by in 30 seconds. On another level, they go, I just got five years of life experience. So you create time distortion. This is where you're, you earn the right to lecture. You earn the right to drop truth bombs. You earn the right to create realizations. You earn the right to pass on information. And then this here, high-level storytelling, that's what we would call, like, in the movies, there's, like, an establishing shot. You know, at the beginning of the movie, they show you San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's nighttime, so you know it's San Francisco, it's nighttime. They're just telling you stuff. So sometimes, when you're telling a story, you have to start off. Okay, like, for example, so I got invited to go do this talk for Tony Robbins, so it meant that I had to fly to Fiji. And I got all the way to Fiji, and we're in the plane. As a matter of fact, I'll share with you. On the plane to Fiji... On the plane to Fiji, I had a thought, and I want you to really think about this. My thought was, if I rock this talk, speaking of one talk that changes everything, can you imagine? I haven't been on stage for three years. I've just been invited because of circumstance that you could never even imagine to be a surprise guest speaker at a private business mastery event with Tony Robbins where the only two speakers for five days were me and Tony. How does this happen? I don't know. And I'm on the plane, and I'm thinking, man, you know, if I really rock this talk, if I really, really rock this talk, maybe... Maybe they'll invite me back again. And then the plane got a little lower and the palm trees got a little clearer. And I could see the ocean. And I thought, that is the most limited thought you've ever had. Because if you really rock this talk, if you really blow Tony away, you won't maybe get invited back. No, it's not a matter of maybe you might get on the list. If you really do this well, you will become the list. And I will tell you that three days later, I sat in Tony's house, my wife and I, Tony and Sage, four and a half hours having lunch in his house. And he booked me then for a year and a half of business mastery events. And so I want you to really get the difference of what I just did there. I started off with high-level storytelling. I got called, I got booked, we got on the plane, right? That's the high-level stuff. And then boom, I dropped in. And I dropped in, and how many of you could see the palm trees? Anybody? <laughs> right? I dropped in and with detail, and all of a sudden, it becomes a story. And do you notice your mind relaxes when you go into story mode? That's when it is so much easier to learn. So my view is you should aim for the maximum amount of time in story where you earn the right to lecture, even if you've got to set the stories up a little bit. Does this help? Has this been helpful so far? Are you still awake out there? So we will go from here to open form questions. Now, here's what I want you to know. When I run my five-day speaking program, on day one, I go, all right, it's question time. And like one hand will go up. And then I have to explain to them, like, I'm not saying this for my own grand purposes. I just, I want you to know that when somebody wants to hire me to come in and create like a speech for them, or I don't even do this anymore, but speech writing or marketing scripting, I charge them $20,000 a week. And Mondays and Fridays don't count because I have to travel on those days. So I just, I'm not saying that for any purpose except to say, I'm about to take any question you ask me about anything to do with speaking, anything to do with being a speaker. And so what I want you to know is if you're sitting there with a question and you're not asking it, think about the message you're sending to the universe. I'm not saying I have every answer for you. I'm saying I probably have an interesting perspective for you. So we're going to do a little Q&A. Can we have the catch boxes ready and just get them to whoever's next? Hi, Eric. Hi. Um, my name is Maria. I come from Colombia. And I would really love to know what you do 
before coming on stage, remember me seeing Tony Robbins, for example, like having this jumping thing before and what do you do? Like breathing or... So I have a number of different things. And for me, it doesn't start right before I go on stage. It starts the night before. Mm. And it starts the night before I meditate. I've been meditating since I was about 12. And so I do a really clear, deep meditation. And part of that meditation is that I come and visit the audience. I actually come out and visit you. And so last night I visited you. Please don't write a Me Too article about it. I, uh, I do, I will come out and, uh, you know, and I, I psychologically or whatever you want to call it, but I just go and visit you. And I do that to create an energetic connection because I have a really clear timeline when I'm meeting with an audience. I'm able to feel your timeline. And what I mean by that is I see one timeline where I delivered really well and I see a timeline where I didn't really deliver all that well. And I'm really clear which one I want. And so I go out and I connect with that energy in advance. And what that does, it makes me sleep incredibly well. Because when you know you have a battle, when you know you have a project, when you know if you have something intense to do the next day, you actually sleep better. Is it true? You do. Even if it's shorter, you go to deep sleep because your body goes, I better get ready. So that's where preparation for me begins. Then there are a number of things that I do. Like I listen to music. I would like to tell you that mostly I listen to Led Zeppelin and The Who and occasionally Katy Perry, but that's not important. <laughs> maybe Beyonce once in a while. But the point is I listen to music that gets my blood going. It's like an anchor. And, and so you'll see me, if you saw me outside, you'll see me walking along with the headphones and I'm pounding music into me that's creating the feelings. By the way, how many of you have particular routines that you use before you get ready to go dancing, for example? You know, you have a, there's a particular soundtrack, there's a particular, it's kind of like that. So I'm, I'm stacking that up. Now, directly before I go on stage, there are a number of things that I'll do. I will do physical things like what Tony talks about, like jumping and generating power. But to me, it depends on what energy I want when I walk on the stage. So if I want to walk on the stage and start softly, then I will not pound my chest and do a bunch of jumping jacks. But if I'm coming on stage after Tony, which one of the things that I was most proud of is the entire time I toured with Tony, they gave me the toughest spot in the world at his events is the spot right after him. It's the toughest spot because most people are like, oh, Tony's not on stage and they, they leave. So the job of holding them in the room after he's gone is a big deal. In that case, I am out there raising up my blood pressure, coming out in a very strong visual state. But the most important thing that I do before I come on stage is I see it going well in the moment and after and into the future. So when I get on the stage to talk about WildFit, for example, see, there's not a day that goes by that I don't have somebody write to me and tell me they're no longer diabetic or their cancer's in remission or they've lost 30 pounds or, they've, or their children have lost weight. Or I, I, get, I get letters like that, no kidding, every single day. And so if I'm getting on the stage to talk about WildFit, I imagine those letters coming from you. I imagine that before I go on the stage. And what's really powerful, speaking of Simon Sinek, is when you know your why, it doesn't matter what happens up here, you can handle it. When your why is that strong, if the microphone goes dead or the projector doesn't work or whatever, you just don't care because you have a mission. And so I hope that answers your question. Give her a big hand, please. Where's the next one? Oh, I have here. Oh, there you are. Hi, Eric. My name is Eva Mirabeta Hernandez. I'm from Canarias. I think for me, the, the biggest challenge is I know that I have a lot of stories to tell. I've had a rich life. But I think the challenge lies that when I really connect, I think in, in a way I'm, I'm afraid to be vulnerable, to mm -hmm. actually show, afraid that the emotion will show, I'll get emotional. And I think that is probably my biggest fear, not even telling the story, but when I'm out there and I, and I really go into it, then I'll go to that part as well. I have two really good things for you to think about. First thing is, you have some friends that you have gone deep with. Yes. yes? There are some friends that know everything. Is it true? Yes. And you have other friends that know a lot. 
But the ones that know everything, they're your closest friends. They're the ones you feel most connected with, right? Yes. That's because you've been vulnerable with them. So there's something absolutely attractive about being vulnerable because in the fact of the matter is, is vulnerable is authentic. It's like, I've got nothing to hide. Let me tell you what's really going on in my soul, right? That's why those friends are the closest friends. So the same is true with the audience. So the first thing is we want to get over this. It's powerful. The second thing is this. When you're speaking and you're telling a story, there's a, a line. And we call this line in our speaking academy, we call this line the line of emotional control. And what that means is that if you go below that line, you might lose your... There's a technical term that we use in the professional speaking world. It's called, you might know this, it's called losing your shit. You, you know the term? And so when you approach that line, the trouble is we don't know where the line is. In fact, this is kind of crazy, but you know, I know we've got probably 20 different countries represented in this room, but is it fair to say that on the whole, on the whole, men cry less easily than women? Is that fair to say as a generalization? Yes? Now, I can explain to you kind of two reasons why men do that. The one is that just culturally, we weren't really given permission. We were rewarded for not doing it, and we weren't really... I mean, matter of fact, there's the craziest example is, I want you to imagine that you're women, please, imagine that you're on a plane with your husband or your boyfriend, and then you experience turbulence, but not like turbulence. I'm talking like there's coffee dripping from the ceiling turbulence. You know, like the airline attendants are lying on the ground with their feet wrapped through. I've been through those turbulence. I want you to imagine that you're on the plane with these turbulence and then you look over to your husband and he's crying. Right? Like we're not allowed to cry. And so that's actually one of the reasons that we don't do it so much. Oh, so sweet. She, she's here and leans over and she goes, you could cry if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> But the fact is, really, we're not supposed to in that situation. But the real reason, that's kind of a joke. The real reason men don't cry, it's kind of a feedback loop. It's because if we give in to it, we're not sure it'll stop. If it gets bad enough for us to cry, we're just not sure it'll stop. We're afraid of the line of emotional control. So the same thing happens when you're on stage, only worse, because now people are watching. Like, long before the audience can see your eyes misting up, you can feel it. And you think they can see it. They can't yet. But the problem is once you feel they can see it, then it makes them mist up more, right? And it kind of becomes this loop. So what happens is, is that we're telling the story, telling the story, telling the story, and then we get somewhere near this line, but we don't know where the line is. So what do we do? We pull out and we start high-level storytelling or reporting. We stop telling the story properly because we're trying to save ourselves from feeling. The problem is, if you want your audience to feel, then you must feel. If you want the audience to feel something, you have to feel that something. So if you're telling a story in order to evoke emotional response, you have to have the emotional response. You can't, okay, now for this part of the story, everybody be sad. Please, are you ready? Every one, two, three, sad. No, you've got to be sad. You actually have to be sad. You have to be willing to tear up. You have to be willing to be real. And so... The key here is, is to know that, first of all, this line doesn't really exist. It, it is incredibly rare. I have almost never seen it out of a workshop environment where somebody actually fully loses control. Now, the beautiful thing is to practice a story like this in a safe environment. You can go to a thing like Toastmasters or speaker club of some kind, or you can go to a speaking workshop and practice it and learn where the line is. The real issue is you don't know where it is. You start telling the story and you start the throat. Uh-oh, I'm near the line. Uh-oh, eyes, I might be near the line. Oh, pull up, pull up, pull up. Well, it's not that big a deal, right? What you really want to do 
If you want to hold an audience, if you want them to remember you, if you want them to change, if you want them to love you in your message and you want them to come back to your fire again and again and again, then the way you tell the story is, and you will own the audience through that time. You'll just have them. And so it's just a matter of being willing. Surfing is dangerous sometimes, but that's what you're talking about is surfing the line. And then I'll tell you this, if you ever do lose it, I mean, if you ever really lose it, they're just going to love you for it. John Gray. How many of you guys know John Gray? John's a very good friend of mine. And maybe what you guys might not know is that he was once married to Barbara DeAngelis, who's also a relationship author and what have you. And they were hosting a retreat. And I think I've got the story right. It's been a long time since John told it to me. But roughly what I understand is they were hosting a, a retreat. And that morning in the hotel room, they got into the ultimate fight. And Barbara announced at the end of that fight that she was leaving. They're hosting a relationship retreat. <laughs> so she packed her bags and she's gone. And so John, shell-shocked, he's like, good morning. Um, today's going to be a bit different than I originally had in mind because uh, as difficult as this is for me to say, um, Barbara left me this morning. What happened in the audience? shock, empathy. And then he started talking and talking and crying. He couldn't control it. Can you imagine controlling that? And you know what? If I remember the way he told him his story correctly, he said it ended up at that time being one of the best retreats they'd ever run. So don't be afraid of the line of emotion control. Let it be. Find out where the line is and surf it and they will love you for it. Great question. Give her a big hand. Hi, Eric. Uh, my name is Charlotte. My question is, I'm someone that deals with a lot of imposter syndrome. I always think I don't know what I'm talking about. So when it comes to giving a talk, I'm always scared that when I go up on stage, nobody cares what I have to say because they'll think I don't know my shit. And then when I go on... You're and totally I... unique. <laughs> nobody else. Nobody else has this problem. That means I'm special. So then when I come out and I do start talking, then I'm scared, okay, what happens if someone in the audience doesn't agree with me and then they challenge me with a question? And then how do I deal with that? Done. I like automatically freeze up. So easy. Okay. Could you please ask me how long it takes for light to get from the sun to earth? Go ahead. How long does it take for the light to reach the, the earth from, from the sun? Uh, can you repeat the question? How long does it take for the light to get from the sun to the earth? Eric, how long does it take for the light to get from the earth to the sun to the earth? <laughs> See, I freeze up. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Okay. I can't remember. I do once, but I don't know, but I'll look it up for you. Thank you. Now, listen, I'm, I'm playing a joke here, but that's what you do. The only way that imposter syndrome is a problem is if you're actually being an imposter. Otherwise, if you're just you... If you're not carrying airs, if you're not trying to, be, to pretend to be something you're not, then imposter syndrome is just some other form of it. In, in you're like you're being an imposter of an imposter, isn't it? Are you walking on stage telling people that you are the world-class expert in a certain thing and that you are the ultimate authority? Are you doing that? No. Well, then you're not an imposter. Are you walking on stage and saying that I'm an authentic person delivering from my life experience and I'm going to give you the best possible information that I can and if I don't have the information you want, I'll try and find it for you. Is that who you are? Mm -hmm. Then you are not an imposter and then you're okay. Guys, any of you, if you're ever concerned about facing a question from the audience you know, that you don't know the answer to, 
It's really simple. Repeat after me. I don't know. I don't know. That's how you handle it. You just, you just say, I don't know. Interesting question. And by the way, I want you to think about this. Let's say she asks me a really complex question about something to do with speaking or whatever. And I say to her, I don't know. And then we have an intermission or a break. And I walk over to my production table and I find the answer out for her. And then come back after the break. And I say, by the way, I got the answer for you. Now, what's going to be more memorable for her in the audience, that I knew the answer when she first asked it or that I went and got it for her? Do you understand? You will be more credible for being authentic and doing the research. So you never have to worry about being an imposter as long as you're willing to say, I don't know, I'll find out. Cool? Great question. Give her a hand. Hi, I'm Jesus. I'm from Chile. Would you say that a good mind map is enough or like now you make me think that maybe if I practice too much, I'm just getting a structure and I just stick to a mind map. Stop and just practicing. Honestly, I see people doing this like mirror. <laughs> I'm doing my talk right now and I'm practicing with the completely inauthentic expression of my own face and blah, blah, blah. If you practice, you will try to memorize the words. Yeah. I don't want you to memorize the words. Here's what you practice. The stories in front of people at the dinner table. By the way, you guys have some awesome tools that we never had. You have Facebook Live. You have Facebook Live. You have, you have Instagram. You can go, any of you, any of you can go Facebook Live into a private group. If any of you are interested in being speakers, you just join together. You create a little group that says, we're going to become speakers together. or We want to do story development together. And then you just go up there and you go, okay, guys, click... Hey, I'm going live. And you know why live is so much better? Because if you try to record your practice, you will learn how to speak the way most people don't ever learn how to play the piano. Here is how not to learn the piano. This is how I learned the piano and it's why I can't. Because every time I started the song, what happened when I made a mistake? I went back to the beginning. And that is not how you learn the piano. That is anybody in here who plays, anybody play a serious instrument, you play really well. What do you do is you make a mistake? You keep going because otherwise you become like a complete maestro at the first eight bars of Stairway to Heaven <laughs> and nothing else, right? Same thing. If you record your talks or you try and talk in front of the mirror, every time you screw up, you'll be, ah, and you'll, no, you go Facebook live because you got no choice. It's like the rodeo ride. You're in. It's like the roller coaster strapped in, got no choice. Practice your stories, not your presentation. Practice your stories, not your presentation. Great question. Give me a hand. Eric, I'm Alma. My question is more about the responsibility, the dreadful responsibility of giving a message clearly without feeling too bothered with the responsibility of being fragile or researching too much and knowing you've got the audience, you've got their attention. But thinking, what if in four years or two years or two months, I learned that everything I said misled the audience? That is such a powerful question, you guys. And here's the thing. If perfection is your goal, you're already there. You are currently perfect. You are currently perfect and your talk is currently perfect because everything that has happened up to now was meant to happen the way it was meant to happen. And everything you said up to now was what you were meant to say. You are currently perfect. You are the most statistically unlikely thing. Every single one of you is made up of stardust. Stardust. Every single one of you is, is perfect. You're, you're already perfect. And your father made 300 million sperm cells and the one, 
one got through. And that happened for generation after generation. And the reason I'm saying this to you is that we sometimes forget that. We feel all imperfect all the time and we do bad comparison. Comparison is not the destruction of your soul. Bad comparison is. When you look at Instagram and some people say, oh, Instagram causes depression. No, it does not. The only way Instagram causes depression is if you have a lack of mentality. If you look at Instagram and go, I wish I had that. I wish I had that. That lifestyle's too cool. I wish I had that. If you are comparing badly, then Instagram will destroy your soul. But if you see Instagram as a bunch of winks from the universe saying, oh, that's a cool place to visit. Oh my God, that's a fun car. Oh, I celebrate their success. It changes everything. And so I want to say to you, let go of the idea of perfection because when you share something, you're going to be sharing the very best thing that you could have shared in that moment. And the most vulnerable thing in the world you could do is admit later that you were wrong. And I will tell you, I have been wrong. I will tell you that many of you know that I, you know, I'm the founder of WildFit and I'm out there speaking about food all the time. And there's a very sensitive topic when you're talking about food and that is to meet or not to meet. It's a tough question. It's a tough question. And I will tell you that I was a militant vegan for seven years. I'm sorry to tell you, and I, and I don't want to offend any of you who are vegans. I was wrong. Sapiens are not vegans. It doesn't work. You have to supplement. Even the vegetarian society says, if you're going to be a vegan, you need to supplement. There are things missing from your naturally evolved diet. I did not understand that. And I spoke about it on stage and I wrote papers about it and I was wrong. David Wolf was, a, you guys know David Avocado Wolf, bit of a nut bar, frankly, good guy, nut bar and a good guy and no longer vegan. And you know how hard that must have been for him to come out and say, now he dealt with it really well because what, the way he dealt with it is he realized there were certain things that he needed and he makes bone broth soup effectively from antlers. So no animals are harmed in the making of this soup. We all have to deal with it our own way. The challenge is, is that he was wrong. The deal is, as long as you're willing to admit you were wrong, then you can take the risks. But if you're not willing, and this is why, like politics drives me crazy. Politicians who admit they're wrong, the press calls them flip-floppers. I'm like, well, no, if we don't let our politicians admit that we're wrong, we're going to end up with Donald Trump for president. I mean, we're going to end up with any number of... <laughs> kidding, kidding. So I hope that that helps. The main issue is, is recognize that... Uh, here's a crazy thing. What did doctors of today think of medical practice 100 years ago? Quackery. I mean, insanity. What do you think doctors 100 years from now are going to look at what doctors are doing today? Well, let me tell you, I'll tell you one thing. A hundred years from now, doctors are going to go, you were practicing medicine without studying food? What the hell were you thinking? What the hell were you thinking that you thought you could fix the frame and not worry about the nutrition and the hydration and the toxicity? And what the hell were you thinking? And so we just, at any given level of evolution of our knowledge, we're going to be wrong. And then there's going to be another level. And the way I believe that you deal with that is you be vulnerable and willing to learn and willing to admit where you are wrong. Funny enough, on the vegan thing, one of the ways that I kind of admitted that I was wrong is I, I found out something interesting about vitamin B12. And that is that one of the symptoms of B12 deficiency is aggression. Short mood and aggression. Why? Why do you think that is? That's because in the past, when men hunt, when they get small things, they don't bring them back to camp. When they get big things, they bring them back to camp. And if you haven't had B12 for a while, then you need aggression to make sure you get your share. 
Now, unfortunately, in our culture, that aggression is being used differently, obviously. And you see a lot of very aggressive, militant vegans. I was one of them. And, and by the way, I am not advocating for everybody eating low-quality garbage meat. We have a massive issue to fix. And I will tell you that vegans are more right than meat eaters. And I'll tell you why. Because meat eaters eat 10 times the amount of meat they should be eating. They should be closer to being vegan. Anyway, you have to admit when you're wrong. Give her a big hand. Nice question. One more. Last question. Hello. How are you? So a quick note before my question. I was telling my friends, actually, that I hope they bought a travel insurance before you speak because you're going to take us on a journey. So <laughs> thank you for the experience. Appreciate it. Big fan. So my question thank really you. is, when you start constructing your stories, is there any kind of like a core structure that you follow to tell them over that you can have effective results? Or do you think there's no right or wrong way? No, there definitely are story structures. Tell me what story this is. Young boy, orphaned, grown up with his uncle. Uncle's kind of mean to him. Then he feels a little different, meets an old man with a beard. Harry Potter, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. They're all the same story. You know, J.K. Rowling is a genius at the detail, but the story had been told before. Pocahontas is Avatar. You know, every superhero you've ever fallen in love with, except for the Incredibles, because they're weird. But every, <laughs> every other superhero is an orphan. Every one of them. You never thought of that before, have you? I mean, Superman is such an orphan. We first, we blow up his whole planet. Then we bring him to Earth. We get him an Earth father and have him die too. <laughs> we do the same thing as Spider-Man. We kill off Spider-Man's parents and then he gets to live with his uncle. Then we shoot him. It's very important to us that our superheroes are orphans and alone. So there are structures. There are story patterns that we really enjoy. There are 26, I believe, religions where we count Christianity as one of them that has a savior that dies and resurrects three days later. We like patterned stories. We like stories to be told a certain way. And so what I will tell you is the simplest way to think of a story is the hero's journey. So what does a story need? What are the features? Well, a story's got to have a hero, right? It's got to have the hero. And the story's got to have a hero. And then what, is the, what does the hero need? Problem. Yeah, the hero, his story needs a challenge, challenge. right? It, the story needs a challenge. And then what we need then is a resolution. So the hero had a challenge and resolved it. This is the basic story. Now, if you want the story to actually speak to people's soul, if you really want them to remember it, if you want it to teach them something, if you want them to like really, really, really be in, then what's super important is that the hero, as a result of all this, evolves. So the hero faces a challenge resolves it, overcomes it, and evolves as a result of it. These are the core things. So now this doesn't mean that every story has to follow exactly, but that's a general idea. There's another part of your question though, bonus answer, and that is that storytelling is also a method. And I'll give you this one example and then I'll wind up, and that is that if you are the finance director of a company and you have to give the company the numbers, you can come out and say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to present you with the company numbers. Thanks for coming to the meeting. We projected last quarter that we would have 14% growth and I'm happy to report to you that we actually achieved 16% growth. Well done, everybody. That's how it's done. But the way it should be done, like, you know, if you want people to remember, is you come out and you say, 
Ladies and gentlemen, fellow shareholders, what a morning I've had, you know. I woke up this morning thinking a lot about coming out and talking to you guys. I know that last quarter we projected that we were going to do 14% growth on the quarter, and I know that I felt that that was bullish. I thought that it was optimistic. So when I got the envelope from the accounting team this morning, it was with some apprehension. I was a little worried about it. And I tore the envelope open. I paused for a moment, and I pulled the paper out, and I read the financials, and then I read them again. And then I read them a third time because we weren't right. When we projected the 14%, we were way off because we actually achieved 18% growth on the quarter. Congratulations, everybody. It's just a story, and that's the difference. Thanks very much. Thank you, Bobby. I, I just want to leave you with one last message about this. You guys live in the most exciting times in the world when it comes to being a speaker because you no longer need somebody's permission to put you on their stage. You no longer need some producer or some editor or some production company. You don't need any of that stuff because you have YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. You also have YouTube to learn from. You know, when I started off speaking, if I wanted to watch one of the great speeches of the world, where did I have to go? The library. You guys go to YouTube. Can you imagine what that would have been worth to me that I can watch Martin Luther King and then immediately watch John F. Kennedy and then immediately watch Jim Carrey and then watch... We're talking about millions of dollars of value that you guys all have for free now. And so I want to challenge you that if you really have a mission in the world, if you really want to have an impact, nothing. I don't care what internet funnel you have. I don't care how cool your logo is. I don't care what great book you have. If you truly want to have an impact on the world on camera, in front of an audience, if you want to put a dent in the universe, master this skill and get comfortable with it. And you will absolutely change your quality of life and the lives of the people around you. Thank you guys so very much. It's been an honor and privilege to share. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed that episode and you want to go further in terms of what you learned, here are a couple of things you can do. Firstly, subscribe to Superhumans at Work. It's our second Mind Valley podcast, and it's dedicated to improving yourself at work. Public speaking is one of those areas, of course, but also emotional intelligence, leadership, productivity, and so on. So you can find Superhumans at Work on Spotify or on your favorite podcast tool. It's growing extremely fast, and you will get other lessons as good as the lesson you just learned here. Secondly, if you want to know more about Eric, go to mindvalley.com forward slash wildfit. That is Eric's health transformation program on Mindvalley, where he uses psychology, behavioral science, and even powerful mindset training to transform your relationship with food. I did Wildfit in 2016, transform my health. I no longer do any diet because it's utterly unnecessary, and the results I got from Wildfit have stuck with me. Again, if you Google pictures of me today and pre-2016, you will see how different I look. And part of that, a large chunk of that, is really wild fit. So I hope you check it out. So those are two important things I think you might find fascinating. Our new podcast, Superhumans at Work and Wild Fit by Eric Edmeads. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave us a review and mention Eric Edmeads, E-D-M-E-A-D-E-S. Thanks all. I'll see you next week. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.
If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.